invite you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm 63. As you're turning there, we find David running through the wilderness again. You remember last time we studied God's Word together, we looked at Psalm 56. David wasn't king, he was running from King Saul, running through the wilderness. In this passage, he is king, and he's still running through the wilderness. Not much has changed for our brother David. Shows you there's no such thing as greener pastures. Trouble comes to everyone, even kings, and it's come to David. But as we'll see, once again, God brings out the best of David, even in the worst of times. And there's so much that we're going to be able to learn this morning, uh, especially as it relates to worship. A little bit of context. Uh, David is running from his son Absalom. Uh, You remember when we studied Psalm 51, we looked back in Samuel and we saw in prophet Nathan told uh, David that God forgives you of your sins, but David, there's still going to be temporal consequences for your sin. In fact, the sword is never going to depart from your house. Well, these are some of those consequences. Long story short, Absalom murdered his brother Amnon uh, for violating their sister Tamar. Now, David grieved that. He was grieving. I mean, this is days of our lives, soap opera stuff, what's going on. It's amazing how broken David's family is right now. Uh, David grieved what happened to his daughter, but he still didn't want Amnon to die. It was his boy. And so when Absalom murdered his brother, David shunned Absalom. Several years go by, Absalom gets tired of being shunned, so he makes a play for king. And this is how he does it. He starts laying seeds of discord in the kingdom. He goes to all the heavy hitters in the kingdom, those that he think might be dissatisfied with his father's leadership. And he says, hey, I heard that you might be dissatisfied with how my dad's leading things. I think I can do better. You want to back me in this? And turns out that worked. He uh, grew quite the cult following, so much so that a civil war breaks out. Now, at the very beginning, Absalom had the upper hand, right? David and his loyalists had to flee Jerusalem and with their tails between their legs, run for their life through the desert. Now, the story ends with Absalom dying and David returning to the throne, but it's there in the, uh, the wilderness that David weeps and he mourns and grieves because so much has been taken from him. His throne has been taken from him. His kingdom has been taken from him. His family has been taken from him. He grieved what happened to his daughter. He grieved that one of his sons was murdered. He grieved that his other son was the murderer and his church was taken from him, which we're going to see in this passage. So it's in this horrible circumstance, though, that the beautiful words of Psalm 63 come from David's heart. Scholars say that this is the pinnacle uh, devotional experience that a child of God can have with his father. And it's in these verses, too, that we as God's men are challenged to have that same type of devotional life with the Lord. Let's read it together. Psalm 63, starting with verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary in church, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live, and your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. 
But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as Pat prayed, we are so thankful for this morning. Some of us may be tired, Uh, we may be stressed by what this day holds or this weekend holds, but we're so thankful that you have carved out this time in our lives that we can come together as brothers just to hear from you. Uh, We pray that you would unplug our ears and unstop our hearts, that we might see the beauty and glory of Jesus. Father, don't just inform us this morning, but by your Spirit, transform us. Give us a heart of worship. Enable us, fill us with your spirit that we might truly delight in you as David delights in you in Psalm 63. Help us, O Lord. Speak to us for your servants listen. And it's in Christ Jesus we all pray. Amen. Tim Keller, in describing this passage, says, What David enjoyed here with God was an experience with the Lord that was so powerful, he almost needed God to stop the delight. For had God not veiled his glory, David would have died with joy. Isn't that delightful? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced that level, do you experience that level of devotion with God? For us Presbyterians, those of you that are Presbyterian, we have trouble with that word experience, don't we? We're called frozen chosen for a reason. We're not very emotional people. We love our theology. Experience is that new agey word or something our charismatic brothers and sisters deal with. We don't like it. But what if I told you Psalm 63 not only says that as Christians we can enjoy this intimate experience and relationship with God, but not only that, we're actually called to have that with the Lord. I think that's why Psalm 63 is is intimidating in a way. Because that level of devotion um, that David has here, and certainly as Tim Keller describes it, seems otherworldly, almost impossible for us. And... Truly, left to ourselves, it is impossible to have that type of a relational, devotional experience with God. And I say that not because of our personality type. Some of us are chatty Cathy's, we're emotional basket cases, love to talk about our feelings. Others of us are robots and don't have enough RAM to compute emotion, as my wife says to me sometimes. We actually have a carved out time of the day to talk about our feelings because I hate it so much. Some of you might be like that, but that's not why... It's impossible for us to have this type of relationship with the Lord. The reason it's impossible for us to have this type of relationship with the Lord is because of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. Because of the fall, you and I are naturally inclined not to find our all in all in God. I was reading this story. uh, It happened a long time ago. A couple teenagers broke into uh, Saks Fifth Avenue. They broke in there in the middle of the night, and uh, they didn't steal anything but they switched the price tags on all the merchandise. They're doing a gag. So if you're going to go in there the next day, you're going to buy or see, at least see a pair of socks worth 800 bucks and a cashmere sweater worth 10 bucks. You know, that, that's, that was their joke. They thought it was hilarious. It was dumb because they got arrested. You know, if, I'm not condoning thievery, but if you're going to go for it, go big or go home, at least go for the cash register. Dumb prank, but it's a perfect illustration for what happened in the fall. Because what those boys did is exactly what Satan did. He switched the price tags on us. 
He devalued God and placed ultimate value on the things of this world. And we bought it hook, line, and sinker. This is what Paul says in Romans 1, that we exchange the glory of God for the things that God creates. So it's impossible for us to have this relationship, this devotion, this experience with God, because it's our natural inclination not to as a result of the fall. The good news is, however, God does not leave us there. It is possible, as it turns out, and it's possible for us to enjoy this type of relationship that we can enjoy and are called to because of God's grace. That's the reason David was able to experience this relationship, not because David was awesome. He was able to experience because God gave him grace. He was hid in God because of God's grace. And he grew in his relationship with God because he leaned into the means of grace that God gave him, namely worship, which we're going to talk about a lot this morning. God's grace, he had this relationship, by God's grace. But that's how God works, isn't it? Oftentimes he calls us to levels of devotion and levels of obedience that are absolutely impossible without his grace. And that's what God does in Psalm 63. This is what Psalm 63 is. He he holds up this standard, God, of this relationship that we are supposed to have with him And he tells us, you cannot have this without my help, but with my grace, I will make you have this. I will make you not just like David, but the greater David, my son, who perfectly delights in me. And I will burn up everything in your life that keeps you from that. That's what David's desire of his heart was in Psalm 27. He says, the one thing I ask of God, the one thing I I want more than anything else is to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze upon his beauty. And isn't that true? That's the desire of any Christian who's saved by grace, united to Christ, hid in him. That though that we might think that way all the time, but the overarching desire of our heart is to delight in Christ. What David found to be true, what Psalm 63 teaches us, is that when we make that the pursuit of our life, make that the prayer of our heart to delight in Jesus, God delights in answering it. And what we're going to see in this passage are three, a couple of different things. First off, how worship helped David delight in the Lord. Worship, we're going to talk a lot about worship as something that God gives us a gift and it has amazing effects on us as Christians. And then we're going to talk about three different effects that happened in David's life because he worshiped the Lord. Okay, so first and foremost, let's talk about the main principle I want us to take away from this. Uh, The worship of God cultivates our love of God. The worship of God cultivates our love of God. This is not explicitly stated in this passage, but implicitly it's all over the pages. we got to talk about This is the main principle we need to take home. This is a little academic, but I think it's worthy of it. A little bit of theology about worship. First off, you and I were created for worship. You and I, the reason of our existence, the reason we have breath in our lungs is to delight and worship God, to delight in him and to praise him. He tells us in Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by, name, my, by my name, I created for my glory. Later in verse 21, he says, the people whom I formed for myself, I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. God created us to delight in him and to enjoy him forever. And he did so not because there was something lacking within himself. He did so simply because he loves you. I love how C.S. Lewis describes it. He said, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enjoyed a divine dance within himself for all of eternity, delighting in himself, uh, glorifying himself, enjoying himself. 
And out of an overflow of that delight and love, he creates you to bring you into that dance so that you might know him and delight in him too. He created us solely for the fact that we might know him and worship him and enjoy him and delight in him. That's why you exist. But then, of course, in the fall, we see that everything got messed up. We started worshiping other things. We exchanged God's glory for the things of this world. Our hearts got knocked off kilter, and we started worshiping created things. And we think to ourselves, wow, if I make my life all about that person or that relationship or myself or, or these trinkets of the world, then I'd be satisfied. And that, of course, leaves us dissatisfied and brings us further and further away from the Lord. But the fall... Uh, we started worshiping other things other than God. However, God and his grace does not leave us there. We've already talked about this. In redemption, we see that you and I are saved by God to once again worship him rightly and truly. He loves you so much, he doesn't want to leave you dissatisfied. He saves you so that you might know him and worship him because your purpose in life is to know him and to worship him. It's amazing. We see this in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. God, through Moses, rescues Israel from the land of Egypt, the house of slavery. Why? So that my people might know me, serve me, and worship me, God says. He delivered them from bondage so they might fulfill their purpose in worshiping God. Jesus tells us, too, that this is the purpose of the gospel in John chapter 4. The Father seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. That means those who might truly know God and worship him truly and rightly. You could even say the purpose of personal evangelism, the purpose of foreign missions, the purpose of short-term mission trips is to find worshipers. Because in consummation, when Christ ushers in the new heaven and new earth, that's, that's what we're going to be doing for all of eternity anyway united together with all of our brothers and sisters from every corner of the earth, delighting in God and worshiping him together around the throne of the Lamb. So worship is kind of a big deal, right? But here's the thing. Even as Christians who have been given a new heart, who have been indwelt by the Spirit, who are being changed by the Spirit, now we have new desires, the desires of Jesus to delight in the Father. Still, we're not perfect yet, and so sometimes still we commit the sins of idolatry. Now, that's a big deal because not only are we rebelling against the Lord, but as Sinclair Ferguson says, if the triune God is holy with a W, committed to making me holy so that I might worship him and know him, but my will is in contention with that, I'm interested in doing other things, well, then, of course, my relationship with the Lord is going to have water thrown on it. Does that make sense? You know, sometimes we go through these valleys in our spiritual life, like it feels like we just can't hear from God, we, we just can't see the Lord it could be because we have idols in our life. That's a measure of God's grace, though, if you think about it. When we go through those seasons, it's like a, an alarm's going off. that There's something wrong. Are you worshiping something else? Sinclair Ferguson says, of course that's going to be the case. If, if we're worshiping something other than God, if you're in a relationship with God, of course you're going to have a dry spell with the Lord. If you're in a fight with your wife, that intimacy is going to wane a little bit. You're still married to her, <laughs> But it's going to wane a little bit, that intimacy, so it is with your relationship with the Lord when we worship idols. But not only that, sometimes our idols are hard to find, right? Most of the time, our idols are good things. We have idols in ministry. Is the object of my worship Jesus Christ, or is the object of my worship the method of worship? Which just happens to be a reason that a lot of churches split over the method of worship. They've made that into an idol. Sometimes it's hard to figure out if we're committing the sins of idolatry and what our idols are. So how do we deduce that? This is our next sub-point. 
our habits not only reveal, but also cultivate our love for the object that we worship. Our habits reveal not only who it is or what it is we worship, but it actually cultivates our love for that thing. Ligon Duncan from First Pres Jackson says, if you follow the trail of your time and your affection and your energy and your money, habits, at the end of that trail, you'll find a throne and there will be a God on that throne. So he's saying our habits, what we do with our alone time, our money, our, our, the things that, that we busy our lives with, those things are eventually going to show a trail and that trail is going to lead to whoever it is or whatever it is we're worshiping. Not only does it reveal the object of our worship, it also cultivates Love for the object of our worship. Jamie Smith, who wrote this book, You Are What You Love, a fabulous book if you want to read that. He says our habits, and he calls them cultural liturgies, by the way. Liturgies, things that we do in worship service that are kind of rote, that we do every Sunday here at Second. Habits, liturgies that, that tune our hearts to the Lord. There are cultural liturgies that tune our hearts to false saviors or false salvation projects. He says, the habits that we have in our life are so powerful that not only do they reveal what it is that we worship, they actually cultivate love for it. He says, it's like an addiction. The more you feed it, the more that addiction grows. It's kind of like Pringles. You eat one, I defy you just to eat one, you're going to eat the whole thing. Why? Because the commercial tells us, once you pop, you can't stop. That's what he's talking about here. Once you feed that habit, once you commit yourselves to those habits, it's just simply going to make that that addiction grow. That then is why true worship reorients our hearts back to God. True worship reorients our hearts back to God. I love what John Calvin says. He says, looking at verse 2, it is clear that the reason David did not allow himself to be overcome by his deprivation and trials in life, but rather kept his eyes and heart heavenward, was because he exercised what he learned in the sanctuary. Look at verse 2. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, O God, beholding your power and your glory. Every Sunday in the sanctuary, in church, in the, in the assembly of God's people, in corporate worship, he beheld the power and the glory of God, and that rehabituated his mind that reimagined his thoughts, that redirected his heart back towards God, and it informed everything that we see happen in Psalm 63, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. But do you see how that works? The point is, you and I, we were created for worship. It is our response, worship is, to God's grace and his mercy. But friends, worship is much more about what God does inside us than something that it is that we give to God. The Holy Spirit works in our lives when we worship Him, when we go to Him devotionally in the privacy of our own homes, but particularly when we are in the assembly of God's people worshiping Him together, the Holy Spirit is, is rewiring our brains. Every day we're on the outside, Monday through Saturday, we're out there in the world where we're being told every single day, for example, the American dream is what will bring you happiness. If you make an X amount of dollars, if you retire at a certain age, and if you have that lake house, and you have this many grandchildren with that white picket fence, then you're going to be happy and satisfied. And the cultural liturgies of this world, the media, uh, consumer, all the different things, it just continually feeds that lie. But when we get into the sanctuary on Sundays, from beginning to end in that worship service, the Holy Spirit is reorienting our mind back to the only story that matters. Who God is, what he has done, what he has promised to do, and the person of Jesus, and how in his grace he's made you a part of that story. 
The Holy Spirit reprogrammed him. It rehabituated him. It reestablished his imagination of what is true. Worship. And so David then, he had his life awakened to the love of God. And therefore, even in these dire circumstances, he pursued God with all of his heart that he might know that love more. Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, said, Worship quickens our mind to God's glory. It feeds our minds with God's truth. It purges our imagination with his beauty. And it awakens our love for him by revealing his love for us. David had his love awakened by God because God's love was revealed to him in the context of worship. And because of that, he pursued God relentlessly. Now, there's three things we see take place in David's life. First off, the worshiping Christian thirsts for God. We see this in verses 1 through 4. I want you to put yourself in David's shoes for just a moment because the guy really did have everything taken from him. The object of every need, the object of every want he had in his life was stripped. Think about it. His throne was taken away from him. All right, that was his position in life. So put yourself in his shoes. If you have letters in front of your name, if you have degrees, uh, whatever your job title is, whatever uh, your bank account number says, all this stuff that defines your position in life, imagine that just being taken away from you this morning. But not only that, David also had his kingdom taken away from him. The place that provided for him his basic needs of life and his wants, the things that he enjoyed. So imagine all of a sudden, all the things that bring you happiness and joy in this life, your hobbies, season tickets, your hunt club, all, all the things that just you just delight in, measures of God's common grace. Imagine those taken away from you, but not just that, the basic necessities of life are taken away from you. You no longer have access to, to free and clean water. You no longer have the funds to purchase food. Imagine that just taken from you, just like that. But not only that, also imagine your family was taken from you because that's what happened to David. His family was taken from him. He was on the run. He was isolated. He had some loyalists with him, some some comrades in arms. But his dear friends weren't with him. His children weren't with him. His wife wasn't with him. He was on the run. And not only that, his church was taken from him. Imagine that you had no place to go to on Sunday. No doors open to you. You were by yourself. Friends, the natural human response to those things, make no mistake about it, is fear. (laughs) If that that happened to us, the the natural human response would be fear, but not David. What was David's response? What was his knee-jerk reaction? He thirsted for God. As if the point of deprivation in his life that affected him the most was being blocked from the sanctuary doors. That is not a normal human response. But that was David's response because his, his, his life had been rehabituated. His heart and his mind had been focused on God and he thirsted for God. Let's think about that word thirst because it's a very interesting word, imagery that we receive here. I have a hard time understanding what David is talking about. I really had to think about it because I have never been truly thirsty before like David has. I don't think you have either. Remember, David was on the run. He didn't have time to pack for this trip. David's on the run. He's in the wilderness. When you see that word wilderness in the Bible, it is, you know, there, there's not the Amazon in the Middle East, okay? It was a barren desert. That's what wilderness means, a barren desert wasteland. So David is running through the barren desert wasteland. Mind you, there's no water fountain. There's no vending machine that sells Dasani, all right? He doesn't have water. He's thirsty, which is a big, he wasn't deprived just of the wants of life. He was deprived of the necessities to be alive. 
I, can't, I don't know the science, but I think it's like 60 to 75% of our bodies are made up of water, which meant that every single molecule in David's body was crying out for a need. There is no more frustrated of a need of your body than thirst. And David was thirsty. But it was that physical thirst that reminded David of his spiritual thirst of God. You see how unnatural that is. The normal human response would be fear in that situation, but this is what David says. David says, as precious as life is, and I don't want to die, but as precious as life is, it's nothing but a barren wasteland without fellowship with the Lord. And therefore, he desired God, he valued God more than the basic necessities of life, and therefore, he pursued God relentlessly. Two questions. Why did he value God more than the basic necessities of life, and how did he pursue God? Number one, he valued God more than the basic necessities of life because in the context of worship, two truths were imprinted in his heart and his mind. Verse 1, he says, Oh God, you are my God. What he's saying there is that God, the God of the universe, is my covenantal God. In the context of worship in Israel, over and over and over again, they would remind themselves of the basic truths, the Abrahamic covenant, where God says, I will not only be your God, but the God of your children. They remind themselves what happened in Exodus, that God rescued Israel from the house of slavery, freed them of bondage so that they might be his people and they might know him and delight in him. Then he gave them the law, by the way. It was in grace that he rescued them to be his people. They remember the command in Deuteronomy 6 where they were commanded by the Lord to categorize these truths into your children so they might know too that I'm their covenant God. Over and over and over again, they reminded themselves of these truths. Why? Because they're just like us. We have the hardest time believing that the God of the universe who formed the billions upon billions of stars actually cares and loves little old me. It truly is too good to be true. But David, in the context of worship, over and over again, heard the words, sang the words, not only that God is our God, but God is my God. The personal pronouns of Christianity are a beautiful thing. Memorize them when you see them in the scriptures. God is your God. God is my God. And David says that that is true. Who cares what happens to me? If the God of the universe is my God. He had that imprinted in his heart and in his mind over and over again. Secondly, he knew that the covenant love of God is better in life. Verse 3, he says, your loving kindness, O Lord, is better than life. Just think about it. You could have a job that you absolutely hate. Your boss just chews your butt every day of the week. You think your job security just hang in the balance. You don't like your coworkers. It's a miserable existence. But you get home to your house where there's a spouse waiting for you who loves you unconditionally. And when you have that security, when you have that love waiting for you, it doesn't really matter what's happening in the rest of your life because you have your spouse's love. How much more so when the God of the universe loves you unconditionally, not because you're worthy of it, not because you're beautiful, not because you're deserving of it, but simply, simply because he just loves you. David says his love is greater than life. So that's why he valued God more than the basic necessities, because if you have God's presence, if you have God's love, what else do you need? The second question, how did David pursue God? Now, that's a good question, because remember, the sanctuary was taken from David. His, his church is no more. So how is he going to worship the Lord? Well, he did so devotionally. David desired more than anything else to go into his father's house in the assembly of God's people to worship God corporately, but he could still worship God privately. 
which gives us our main takeaway. Friends, we must have an intentional devotional life with the Lord. If we're ever going to grow in our relationship with Jesus and that fan, uh, fan the flame of our love for him, we must pursue him devotionally. It's very important that we are a member of a church and we're worshiping with God's people, but one day of the week isn't enough. You need God's truth every single day. Just like David. Notice how intentional David's devotional life was. In verse 1, he says, I earnestly seek you. Another translation for that is early in the morning. Then in verse 6, he says, on my bed, I will remember you. So David is saying he makes the time for the Lord early in the morning and late at night. I'm not commanding uh, or commanding your outlook calendars or telling you what to do with it, but the Bible tells you you have to make time for God. And why wouldn't you want to make time to spend time with the Lord, to be in communion with the God who loves you? But David made time for God. Secondly, he bent his body. In verse 4, he says he lifts his hands. We do that in corporate worship here at Second. We lift our hands in the prayer of invocation to remind ourselves that we are dependent on God's love and God is good enough to give us his love. David's not in corporate worship. He's in the privacy of his own home. He is bending his body to remind his soul of what is true. Lastly, in verse 4, he says, I will bless you as long as I live. (laughs) Which therefore implies he's going to praise the Lord, sing to the Lord, even in those times he doesn't really feel like doing it. How often have we skipped church on Sunday mornings or, or have just not prayed to the Lord or read his word at night? Certainly we haven't prayed to him, especially if our kids and our wives are in earshot saying to him. But how often have we just not done those things because we didn't feel like it? Friends, do you think David felt like doing those things? He was in the desert, thirsty, exhausted. His mind was going from crisis to crisis. But he did it anyway, and so should we. Why would we not? to bend our bodies in order to remind our souls of what is true. This is what Paul does. He says he beats his body into submission. This is what Jesus partially means when he says, pick up your cross and follow me. He says, force your body, force your heart to do what it's naturally inclined not to do in order to lead your soul to where it needs. Force your body to do what it doesn't want to do in order to lead your soul to what it needs, which is what David did. He did these things. He pursued God relentlessly because what he wanted more than anything else in this world was God. Friends, what do we value? Where do the habits of our heart lead us? Friends, if it's not God, we're going to value life more than the love of the Lord. But if it is God, we're going to value the love of God more than the basic necessities of life. David thirsted for God because he valued God more than life, and therefore he thirsted for him. That's the first thing we see happen in David's life. Secondly, the worshiping Christian we see is satisfied in God. Verses 5 through 8, David didn't just thirst for God, he was satisfied for God. He not only longed for God, he enjoyed the Lord. I love how verse 5 reads. This is the translation I like that I think is best. Just listen. It really feels like it's a verse given to men at Amen Bible study, this is what it says. My soul is satisfied with, as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth offers praise with joyful lips. What that sounds like to me is that David just had the biggest, most greasy, delicious, marbled ribeye that Folks Folly has ever produced. And there's just grease just dripping down his face. He's bloated. He has to undo his belt buckle. I mean, he's just miserably satisfied. <laughs> He said, that's what it's like being with my Lord. 
He gives me that satisfaction. He satisfies me, just like I just had this giant steak with marrow and fat and grease running down my lips. Friends, are you satisfied? Is that how you feel in your relationship with the Lord? If it's not, is it because you've gone to a fast food restaurant rather than folks following to satisfy you? Because, you know, McDonald's just leaves you more dissatisfied than when you first began when you go to a place like that. Where are we finding satisfaction? Where are we seeking, uh, seeking satisfaction? C.S. Lewis, he turned to this coin, uh, coined this term, I'm going to mispronounce it, it's German, Sinschucht. And what it is, it describes this craving that human beings have to fulfill, or fill rather, this human restlessness. Essentially, it's a God-sized soul in our heart that every human being has, and we have this craving to fill it. And he says there's three ways that human beings try to fill this hole. Number one, he calls it the fool's way. The fool's way is when someone imagines that if they reach a certain plateau in life or achieve something, that's going to satisfy them. They get to that plateau. It satisfies them for just a little bit, but then it wears off. So then they think to themselves, all right, well, if I get to that next plateau, if I achieve that thing, then I'll be satisfied. And on and on and on and on they go living a dissatisfied life because nothing really, truly satisfies them. An excellent example of that is Madonna. I imagine not too many of us are Madonna fans in here, but Madonna is very talented and accomplished in her field. Won numerous of Granny's, number one hits all over the place. She says this of herself, that every single day she goes in the courtroom to justify her existence. She knows her fans adore her, but she feels like she has to prove every single day that she is worthy of their adoration. And so after she accomplishes something, she tries to set out and to conquer the world all over again, and she is miserable because she constantly feels like she has to go from one plateau to the next, trying to finally satisfy her and her fans. That's the fool's way. He says, then there's the sensible person's way. These people are sensible in the sense that they know there's not anything in this world that could satisfy them forever, so they're just going to amuse themselves to death. They have that fatalistic mentality that Isaiah denounces in chapter 22 that says, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They try to amuse themselves to death, just hang on to whatever it is, whatever lust they have, whatever hunger they have. They try to satisfy that by whatever it is, as long as it does, and they're just going to move on to the next thing. They're amusing themselves to death. I knew a lot of people in college like that. I lived that way for a certain way. There's a third way. There's a Christian way. He says, these are the people who reason in their minds that if we have this longing in our hearts that nothing in this world can satisfy, and that means then we are not made for this world. We are made from someone, and that someone is God. Only he can satisfy us. This is what St. Augustine says, God created us for himself, but our hearts will always remain restless until they rest in him. That's what Jesus teaches in the treasure in the field parable. The man who sees this treasure in the field, and it's so desirable, he sells off everything he has in order to purchase this field. He makes himself poor to have the treasure of Christ. Why is Jesus so valuable? Because we were created by Jesus and for Jesus, and it's only Jesus that could ever satisfy you. Are you satisfied in Christ? He's the only one that could ever satisfy you. Two little subpoints from this main point. Number one, the aim of worship is our satisfaction. God deserves it. He's worthy of it. We're called to do it. But the result of it is always our satisfaction, worship. David says in verse 8, he says, My soul clings to you, O God. Another translation for clings is follow hard after. 
David is saying, because you satisfy me, because you satisfy my thirst, I'm going to follow hard after you. I'm going to relentlessly pursue you. I'm going to cling to you, O God, because I want to be more satisfied. I always want to be satisfied. I always want to feel like I just had a steak from folks' folly. I want to be in relationship with you, so I'm going to follow you relentlessly, is what that word cling means. It's interesting. It's the same word that we see in the story of Ruth. In Ruth, we see these three women, these three weeping women, these friends, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. Naomi, she wants to go to Israel. She wants to go be with God's people because she loves God. She values God. She wants to be with God. Orpah doesn't care about that. She's going to miss her sisters and her friends, but she's going to stay exactly where where she is. Then you have Ruth, this girl who has no idea who God is, only that of which she has learned from Naomi. And what Naomi has told her about Israel's God, the Hebrew God, has just completely amazed her. It's overwhelmed her, and she wants to know more about this God because she's starting to experience the satisfaction like she never has before. So she says, I'm going to cling to you, Naomi. I'm going to follow hard after you because I want to know this God more. That's what David does in this passage. He goes, God, you satisfy me. You alone can satisfy me, so I'm going to follow you hard all the days of my life. Friends, do we cling to the Lord? In all honesty, we don't always cling to the Lord, do we? (laughs) We forego going to Ruth's Chris often for McDonald's, and it leaves us dissatisfied. Some of you might be dissatisfied in your relationship with the Lord this morning. What is the remedy for the dissatisfied heart? The remedy for a dissatisfied heart, friends, it's the word of God. This is what uh, David says. He says, even in these horrible circumstances, my soul will be satisfied. I will praise you when I remember you, David says. What does David remember? He's remembering the revealed will of God in the scriptures, either by memory or he might have the scriptures with him, but he's remembering, remembering God's word. He's meditating on them all the day. When insomnia drove sleep from David's eyes, the surefire remedy of that was God's word. He meditated on the revealed truth of the Lord in scriptures. And Tim Keller says, in the desert, right there smack dab in the desert, David had a communion with God. He sees this in verses 6 through 7. He has communion with God through word and prayer. And you can see it play out. David takes his dissatisfaction, his fears, and his worries to the Lord. He shares his secrets, the secrets of his heart with the Lord. God, in turn, shares his secrets with David, just as Jesus does with his people. He says, I'm Jehovah Jireh, David. I'll provide for you. Trust me. And primarily, I want to provide you my covenant love, my unfailing love. Now, I will always be with you. And what did David do? He responded with praise. The word of God transformed his fear and the dissatisfaction into trust. Have you ever noticed those people who are neck deep in God's word? Those folks who just have a rigorous, disciplined, devotional life. Their lives could be going through hell in a handbasket, but those persons that are just neck deep in the word of God, there's just this this faint smile on their face. Have you noticed? It's as if they have the secret of life hidden away. They have this deep abiding, not, not a superficial happiness, but a deep abiding joy that keeps them afloat even in the worst droughts and worst storms of life. This is why Jesus commands us to abide in his word, to make our home in his word, to pursue him devotionally. Because when we do, his divine joy 
will be in us, and therefore our joy might be complete, or in other word, satisfied. The remedy for a dissatisfied heart is the word of God. Friends, Jesus commands us to to satiate our hunger in his word, because his word alone, Christ alone, will satisfy us. Lastly, the worshiping Christian will have a powerful trust in the power of God. Verses 9 through 11. David thirsted for God. He was satisfied in God. He also trusted in God. I find this remarkable because given David's circumstance, he had no circumstantial evidence that God could be trusted, yet he trusted God anyway. I mean, think about all the things that just happened to him. He has no circumstantial evidence to believe God, yet he did. First off, he believed God in verse 9 that not David, but his enemies would be doomed. I love what Spurgeon says. He says it's a dangerous thing against, uh, it's a dangerous thing to go up against God's people because each attack is another nail to the attacker's coffin. It's not David who's going to be doomed. It's his enemies and God's enemies that will be doomed. Again, in verse 10, David trusted and believed that his enemies' schemes and their attempts would ultimately be defeated. Though David didn't have an army, he knew that he had God and God was enough because nothing could ever thwart God's plans for his people. Verse 11, he also trusted that God would vindicate him, David, this man who's running for his life, who just gotten his throne taken from him, running for his life through the desert, knew that God would vindicate him, which is exactly what happened because Psalm 63, friends, was written in the book of life and whatever taunts his enemies had aren't even a memory. David knew that God would vindicate his people. And God's going to vindicate you too. And immersing yourself in God's word reminds you of that, calls to memory the truths of scripture, that gospel that we need but have a hard time believing. It engraves into our hearts and our minds. David knew these things. He he knew about God. He was categorized by God's word through worship. He didn't just know of God as we might know of someone like a celebrity that we don't really know him. He knew about God as we know about our spouses. He was in intimate relationship with the Lord. He knew God's word. He knew about the Lord. That's why David trusted him. He, he knew that God was, it was supreme. He knew that life wasn't about thrones or titles. He knew it was about God, and God in his grace invited David into his story. It's not about David, it's about God, but God in his grace still invited David into his story. He knew that God was his God. His family may have left him and have abandoned him, but he knew that God would never leave him. He knew that the value of God's love was greater than life. It was the only thing that could satisfy his soul. And he knew that God was his fortress against whom no enemy could possibly assail. And because David knew these things, he had a defiant faith. Nothing could attack his faith because he knew about God. He stayed in God's word. He was rehabituated by God's word and through worship. Secondly, his trials substantiated what he knew about God. It was during his deprivation that his faith was made real. Because when the last, the only thing he had left was God, he knew then in that moment the only thing he needed was God. And God often brings us through seasons of deprivation to remind us of that. The only thing we could ever need in this world is God himself because he's the only thing that could ever possibly satisfy you. Friends, where do you go when you're in the desert? Where do you seek to find refuge, where do you seek satisfaction? David says, the Bible says, only Christ can satisfy you. 
But if you're like me, you, you fail in going to him so often. You still go to the treasures of this world. We fail so often in living up to the standard of Psalm 63. But friends, hear the good news. The standard of Psalm 63 is not David. It's the greater David, Jesus Christ himself, who perfectly delighted in his father and was delighted in by his father. And that's good news because Jesus says of himself that he is the well of living water who quenches thirst eternally. He is the bread of life who satisfies true hunger. And he is the one that pursues you relentlessly. Even when you fail, Jesus says, in grace, I'm going to make you like me, not because you deserve it, but simply because I love you. My wife grew up in Augusta, Georgia. Her pastor growing up was actually George Robertson, and a youth pastor to her church was Todd Erickson. Todd Erickson tells a story every now and again uh, about this family in Augusta that my wife actually knew, so I kind of feel like it's my illustration. I'm going to steal it this morning. Um, it was this young family, a very well-off family, had a, a big house, great jobs. One day they decided um, that they were going to adopt four children, uh, grade school age children from Russia. Uh, these kids, before they were adopted, had one heck of a story. They were orphans. They never knew their parents. They were neglected all their life. Uh, they had to fend for themselves. They were abused. They were traumatized. So this family wanted to adopt them mainly for those reasons. They wanted to adopt these kids into their family, invite them into their lives, into their story, so they could love them and they could nurture them and care for them. And everything was going well for several months. All of a sudden, though, the mother started noticing things going missing around the house. Um, some bills out of her husband's billfold, some silverware, like true silver, some necklaces, rings, things of that nature. And the wife was rightly freaked out. She thought someone was breaking in every now and again. Maybe it was the, the maid. Someone was stealing something, and she was nervous about it. But one day, she was in the boys' room cleaning up. She bends down, looks underneath the bed, and there it is, the loot, underneath the oldest boy's bed. She wasn't mad. She was taken back by it. So she just asked him, baby, why, why are you stealing all this stuff? The boy's looking down, and he looked up at his adopted mother with tears in his eyes. And he said all his life he's been having to take care of and provide for his baby brothers. That was his story. No one had ever taken care of them, loved them, or nurtured them. And so they were thieves. They stole to make ends meet and to stay alive. That was their story. So the mother and the father, they, they knelt down when they heard that, and they just wrapped those babies up in their arms and just smothered them with kisses. She said, that's not your story anymore. You don't have to steal anymore because everything you see in this house is yours. More than that, you never have to worry about not being loved anymore because we're going to love you forever. In that moment, those boys' lives changed. They knew they didn't have to steal anymore because all their needs were going to be met. But more than that, they knew that they were actually loved. But their hearts desired more than anything else. Friends, do you know that you are loved by God in Christ more than you could ever possibly imagine? And it's when we know that and believe that, that we're finally freed from trying to find pleasure and satisfaction in life and the things of this world. God in his grace, in spite of ourselves, invites us into his story and gives us the kings of the kingdom. He gives us all the blessings of heaven. Not because you deserve it, 
but because he loves you. And once you know that, once you know that you have what your soul was created for, you're finally going to be satisfied. David knew that. He knew that he was satisfied in God. So he pursued him relentlessly. Brothers, pursue Christ. Lay down whatever it is that you are trying to find satisfaction in. Make the pursuit of your life delighting in Jesus. And friends, when you make that your prayer, just as David found to be true, God will delight in answering it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are just not worthy of you. There's no way around it. We do not deserve you. We're not worthy of you. We are worthy of being left as orphans, but in your grace, you bring us into your family. In your grace, you give us all that we could ever want for or imagine. In your grace, you satisfy our souls in Christ. Father, let us rest in that. Let us be satisfied in your Son. Make it so. Fill us, Father, with all of your fullness. Let us know the dimensions of your love. And let us become more and more dissatisfied with this world and forever filled in you. We pray in Christ's name.